Welcome to the Real Estate Syndication Show. Whether you are a seasoned investor or building a new real estate business, this is the show for you. Whitney Sewell talks to top experts in the business. Our goal is to help you master real estate syndication. And now your host, Whitney Sewell. This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. You know, self-storage is a fast-growing asset class. Many people are getting into self-storage, but you know, Americans have so many things they need to store. And I'm as bad as anyone. I have things that I just want to hold on to forever. It's like, I'm going to use that at some point, right? And can't get rid of it. But because of that... Self-storage is growing in big ways. And so because of that, we've had many great guests as well that have shared tips and tricks with you how they've been successful with their self-storage business and scaled at new levels. So I hope you enjoy the show today and just learning from the experience from those experts. Our guest is Fernando Angelucci. Thanks for being on the show, Fernando. Thanks for having me, Whitney. Tell them a little more about who you are, maybe where you're located and your all's focus, and let's jump in. Yeah. So I'm currently located in Chicago, Illinois. We now primarily invest in self-storage properties. And there's a whole history behind that. I'll kind of keep it short. But you know, when I was an engineer working for Dow, I was really tired of the nine to five life. Well, for me, it was more of a 5 a.m. to 9 p.m. life. And I immediately started investing in single family homes on the side. Within about 13 months, I was able to replace my income and leave the nine to five life to be a full-time real estate investor. From there, you know, I quickly grew into doing flips for single family, buying single family rentals and buying multifamily rentals. And I kept having problems with the, the eviction process. You know, Chicago is a city where the laws are extremely tenant friendly. And if you do everything by the book, it can take, you know, six to eight months to get a bad tenant out of one of your properties, not to mention the amount of damage that they cause on the back end. So I was looking for another avenue that would solve those types of problems for me while still providing, you know, a very consistent passive income to me and my investors. And that's when I actually came across self-storage. I was at a real estate expo that I had attended and all the problems that I had been having, you know, the speaker, it just seemed like he was speaking to me. So we got started in the beginning. We started off by wholesaling self-storage facilities just to make sure we're running the numbers correctly. The way I look at it is if I can wholesale self-storage facility, that means that I'm getting it at a price that makes sense and investors are willing to pay me more than what I got under contract for. But once we did a few of those, then we started feeling comfortable in taking down our own acquisitions. And then since then, we've been growing extremely fast. So Chicago, I mean, the tenant issues evicting, taking six months. I mean, I could see why that would push a lot of landlords into a different asset class or looking for something else. That happened to you. If you just bought a duplex thinking you're just getting started and that happens to you, you're thinking, okay, this is not for me. Right. And especially, you know, in Chicago, where a lot of people enter the buy and hold multifamily markets, usually in C and D areas. And I was no different. So I started buying properties on the south side of Chicago, which in and of itself brings a lot of hardship when managing that type of tenant, low income tenant. Half of the time they're, you know, on some type of Section 8 program vouchers. It is very difficult to manage that. And I know a lot of really good investors that they have that management in place. But for me, you know, I like to go with the path of least resistance. And that was self-storage. So 
I'm a very analytical person. I like data. I like looking at historical performance. So that's one of the things that I actually prepared for the show here. Just looking at a little bit of performance over the last 10, 20 years. When we're looking at self-storage versus other asset classes, there was a study done by N.A. Reed looking at the 2017 value of $100,000 invested in 1994. So if you put that you know, $100,000 in the S&P 500, by 2017, that would have grown to roughly half a million dollars. If you put them in apartments, that $100,000 would have grown to about $1.7 million. If you put them in self-storage, that $100,000 would have grown to a little over $4 million. And when you look at those returns over those periods of time, you see that you know the S&P returned about 7.5%. Apartment buildings, on average returned about 13.3%. And then self-storage returned about 17.4% as an average annual return. That 4% may not seem like a lot, but when you factor compounding interest, that's how you're able to almost double the return in real dollars over that period of time. Now, that's a pretty large period of time, 1994 to 2017. But let's talk about you know recession tolerance. Between 07 and 09, in the same study, we saw that the S&P 500, they lost about 22% in value. The apartment sector did much better. It only lost about 7%. But during that time in the self-storage space, they lost about 3.8% valuations. And the reason why is self-storage is an asset class that caters to those in transition. And that's true of people who are, let's say, downsizing on their home because they can no longer afford a 2,400 square foot mortgage. Maybe they go down to a 1,200 square foot home, but they have these sentimental possessions that they're not just going to get rid of. If your child, for example, this is an example that I have in my own family, my father, you know, I'm a a grown man, but my father still has all the drawings I made for him when I was three, four years old, and he's never going to throw those away. And that's the same thing is true when someone's downsizing. Self-storage also caters to the two largest population groups in the nation. You have the baby boomers who are now historically starting to retire, but I think it's about 10,000 baby boomers a day retire. They're looking to downsize in property, and they're also, you know, on the older end of that age are going into retirement homes. And that is a much more confined space, yet they have a lot of sentimental value in the things that they have and they don't want to get rid of them. So they usually put them in self-storage. It makes a lot more sense to cut 1,200 square feet off of your housing size and then just go pay for an extra 100 square feet that you need monthly. The second group that self-storage caters to quite a bit is, is the millennials and the Gen Xers. The trend of moving to the suburbs is no longer what is driving a lot of development and housing right now. What we're finding in the groups that are, you know, aged 18 to 34 is they're actually moving closer to the city centers because they want to be around the action. They want to be around the great food scenes. They want to be around, you know, the event space. They're not looking for the farm life. Right. And so what they're doing is they're opting for smaller housing, maybe 700 square feet to 1,000 square feet in these high-rises, these condos. And then they're using a self-storage space, maybe 100 square feet, 150 square feet. It's kind of like an exterior closet that anytime, say, they want to go hike or they want to go kayaking or they have clothes for the winter when it's the summer, they can go to that unit, you know, pay an extra 80 bucks a month or 100 bucks a month for that additional square footage. And it allows them to live closer to the city center at a more reasonable price range. 
those are the two main things that got me really attracted to this space. Then when I actually started getting involved, I noticed that the leverage that was being offered to me from banks was far superior to any other asset class that I had pursued leverage on before. And I started to dig in to see why that was. So, you know, I'm talking the worst case scenario loans I've gotten so far were 80% loan to value. The last three properties I've closed, they actually appraised at a good enough value that I was able to not only close them with no down payment, but I actually was able to pull cash out at closing by purchase. The banks were paying me to buy an asset that had positive cash flow. I don't know of any other investors that have done that in other asset classes. So I wanted to dig deep and see why was that the case? And then when you start digging into the data, I looked at Intech Solutions, which is a aggregator. I looked at Wells Fargo Securities. And what we found was self-storage had a much lower default rate compared to any other asset class. So let's just use January of 18 is the most recent data I have. Self-storage, their loans on average across everyone surveyed were defaulting at a rate of about 0.04%. Multifamily in the same stretch was defaulting at a rate of 1.83%. So that's a huge order of magnitude difference. Then when you actually look at the default data, when that rare default did occur in self-storage, the amount loss of loss experienced by the bank was actually much lower than all other asset classes as well. So you look at multifamily, when a bank disposed of those loans, they usually experienced a loss of somewhere around 4.3, 4.4%. Self-storage, the loss per default was at 1.5% range. Again, three times lower than that of multifamily. So then I started to see why banks were giving me such great leverage is because they use self-storage to offset the riskier loans they're giving, specifically banks that were doing new construction loans and single family fix and flip loans. They loved our product. It did take a little bit of you know convincing them by showing them this data and showing them where the data sources came from. But very quickly, if a bank was not familiar with self-storage, very quickly, they started fighting for our loans. Our guest is Scott Crone. Thanks for being on the show, Scott. Thanks, Wendy, for having us. I appreciate the opportunity to talk. What is PACE? PACE is through the Department of Energy. It is a federal program that is implemented by the states where they're looking to reduce the carbon footprint and increase the energy efficiency of buildings. And so if you have your building evaluated and you can show that you can increase the level of efficiency in a building, the improvements are finance through the property taxes. So a special assessment is applied to the property taxes. And so there's, you can either go through the local port authority or um, private PACE funders where they create a debt structure that is amortized over the lifespan of the improvement. And the, the amortization schedule is applied to the property taxes. So you pay twice a year and lenders view it as not as a debt structure, they view it as equity because that cost is above the line item. It's part of the NOI. And so it's part of the property taxes. And so there's only one lien on the property, which is the first. And the, the, the PACE instrument is not leaned on the property other than the taxes. So why go into the underperforming buildings and self-storage? Why not, you know, multifamily or original self-storage? Or what is it about that niche? 
Well, I was a multifamily. I began a multifamily. My master's thesis was a 400 residential unit development on 50 acres that was close to 100 million, if not exceeding 100 million dollars in, in revenue. And so, you know, the first part of my career for the first, you know, 68 years was all in multifamily. And then after the crash, I also began buying distressed apartments. What we saw was that the cap rates were so compressed that it was very competitive and hard to get into that field. On the flip side, during the crash, self-storage was booming because it actually does better in a recessionary market because as people reduce the size of their housing units, they put things into storage rather than getting rid of them. And then also they're, they're looking to, to preserve. So self-storage historically has done better in a recessionary market than an expansion market. And so when I was first looking at self-storage, I was trying to find a distressed self-storage and I couldn't find one. And that's how I got into it. Now, the other side of it is comparatively money, more money is made in the development process than in the repositioning process. So if self-storage is performing and you can only move it from, let's say, a nine cap to an eight cap, you're really not going to make that much margin there comparatively to the, the original class, what's called the first generation or class C operations. What we're dealing with is third generation or class A, which is all environmentally controlled urban settings where you're driving into the building, the garage door comes down and you're unloading your car in the building. And then you use a cart to distribute your goods into your locker. So it's an entirely different model than the original self-storage operations. Wow. So you drive your vehicle in the building and unload. That's interesting. Tell me about the risks that maybe an investor would be worried about in a type of asset like this. Well, every real estate has risks, right? The thing that we like about self-storage is I don't have to worry about color selections. You know, Henry Ford was great with his quote that, you know, my buyers can have any color they want as long as it's black. You know, for us, our clients can have any color self-storage unit that they want as long as it's white. The thing that they get to choose is what size, right? So we eliminated the risk in terms of the finickiness of a buyer in terms of like liking brass or chrome or gold or any of those sorts of things. I mean, when we look at self-storage, it's apartments without toilets. And so whittle this thing down to the most economic basic unit that we could possibly do. So the biggest hurdle within self-storage is not the market. It is how much competition you have. And so what we look for is when we go into areas, we're, we're studying a three and five mile radius as to how much competition is in the marketplace. And we can monetize that. We can analyze that in terms of what is the amount of self-storage in relationship to how many people. And if we begin hitting our approach in a mark, then that means that our, our rates are going to come down, our lead times are going to expand and all those sorts of things. So we like to go into markets that have a heavy demand and not a whole lot of supply. So that's how we we buffer against you know competition. What are some big mistakes you would say you know somebody starting to try to do do what you're doing would make? As far I mean, I can just imagine looking at this old building, trying to assess can we make a self storage building out of this? I mean, we were asked to look at one building that a person was evaluating in Cincinnati, and they thought an old parking garage was going to make for a good building. Well. In a parking garage, a lot of the floors are ramped so that, you know, you can get from one level to the next. The size of the elevator was small. The zoning wasn't there. And so when you looked at each of these factors and the column layout, it made it very difficult. It made it hard to put self-storage in there and overly costly. 
So we actually, you know, discourage the person from going into that marketplace. The other one is if you don't pay attention to the level of competition. You know, we see people wanting to do this. And the metric is how many square feet of lockers per capita. And this one woman who we were talking with, she's like, I own six acres. I'm going to make my, my the property in self-storage. It's going to boom. And I asked her how much other competition was around her. She goes, oh, there's not that much. You know, there's no other self-storage facilities around. And I just did a quick Google search and there's like 18 other facilities. And where market tends to hit, you know, supply or supply equals demand is around seven. And her facility was, her location was already above nine without her adding a single square foot. So I was like, whatever you do, do not put self-storage and it would be the absolute worst thing you could possibly do. Wow. So ultimately, not knowing your market, not knowing your competition. Absolutely. Our guest is Scott Myers. Thanks for being on the show, Scott. Hey, Whitney. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. I'd love for you to elaborate a little more on the thought process behind moving from multifamily to self-storage. Obviously, as the listeners know, you know, we have many or hundreds of multifamily personally. The self-storage argument is very, I think, legitimate. And I'm learning more personally even about it myself. You've been on both sides and extremely experienced. So I'd just love to hear you elaborate a little bit on why did you change your focus instead of, say, syndicating larger multifamily and just growing that platform, but to move completely into self-storage? Storage. I think, first of all, when I begin to look into it, there wasn't a whole lot of folks that were doing it. I also couldn't mm-hmm. find a lot of information on it. And I think it's because it was one of the best kept secrets. I mean, the secret's out now, thanks to, well, I guess myself and several others uh, talking about the benefits of self-storage. But there just wasn't much information on it until I began looking into it. But then when you begin to look at the numbers from a business model standpoint, Again, very, very solid, very recession resistant, as well as inflation resistant. So it's not susceptible to the contraction and expansion of the economy. And again, by the nature of it, I like to spread my risk. And so that's why I got into multifamily and going from single family, slugging it out for a while until you began buying apartment complexes and spreading that risk across multiple units, but with one loan and one business essentially, and then being able to hire property management companies. I mean, that's where I think most people aspire to get to because it's tough in single family until you get to that place. Well, in apartments, again, still just dealing with that same business model where it felt as if everything and everyone was working against us. People didn't pay. We had to continue to chase them. And we were in decent areas. There were blue collar working class areas, but still folks fall on hard times and things happen in the economy and they're very susceptible. And so to chase that money and go through these periods in which occupancy is down very low and then having to bring folks in to rehab the units over and over again. And our average turn was $1,300 and then going to court only to walk out with a little yellow or pink piece of paper with very little ability to collect on folks, especially if they've lost their job. You know, we just realized that there must be a better way. So when we looked at, again, at self-storage, very, very solid and stable. People always need stuff. It works better during a recession because people downsize, yet they can afford a 50 to $75 a month storage unit when they move back home or in with their friends. And if they don't pay, we lock them out and then we sell their goods and we recoup our back rent and our late fees. And then when either we're done with the auction or when somebody just moves out on their own, they're just they're done with the storage unit. You know, rather than a thirteen hundred dollar turn in lost rent and repairs and carpet cleaning and drywall and everything else, I mean, we take a gas blower and blow it out in thirty seconds, and move in the next person that's waiting in line. So for that and many more reasons, we just found that this is to be a more solid, stable, predictable business model. 
you know, I know in multifamily, single family, either one, you know, people always say, well, people are always going to need a place to live. And that's so true. They will always need a place to live. But it sounds like self-storage, it's kind of like, well, this is a better business model because there's not anybody living here. <laughs> you <know? laughs> exactly. You're exactly right. And the two, they go hand in hand. You know, when you right. look in the market, if there's an apartment going up, our business model is pretty predictable. You know, one in 10 households or seven, roughly seven square foot per capita, you know, we can kind of draw and follow the rings. And if there's a self-storage facility going up and you can pretty much guess that there's going to be some divisions and apartment complexes going up as well. It's just a very, very predictable business model. Maybe you can give the listener just a few good steps to take to get to their first self-storage deal. Maybe that's their focus. Obviously, you know, we talk about syndicating a lot and capital raising and, you know, investors and things like that. But, you know, to syndicate that first apartment deal, really, what's your thoughts on just a few first steps that are most likely to get somebody their first self-storage deal? Sure. Well, I think like anything else, if you're going to, and we never convince anybody to bring money into a deal with us, but they need to understand that, you know, we're good at our craft. And so that's the first step is you got to get good at your craft. And so that is through education. Now, there's some you can learn from going to the associations, perhaps visiting some of the association meetings if they're having those right now within your state. But there's a number of different educational programs out there, coaching, mentoring, and more books on the marketplace now to at least get familiar with the terms. For those that are already investing in and familiar with multifamily, the underwriting in terms of a, drilling down to an NOI and a capitalization rate. That's all very, very similar. There's just different nuances to the underwriting of a self-storage facility. And obviously, the business model is a little bit different in how to run a facility versus an apartment complex. So going out and getting your first self-storage facility, you can get a small one. Your money goes a lot further in buying more units in a self-storage facility. So even buying a small one to get your feet wet without syndicating with someone could certainly be a good way to go. Again, do your homework. But if you're getting into syndicating, I don't suggest that this be your first one and then try to raise capital if you don't have the experience. It may take a long time or you have to have some really good friends and family members that will come along with you rather than going out to a wider pool. So like anything else, no secret sauce. Just kind of learn the asset class that you're asking people to sure. come along with you and partner on. What are one or two mistakes that you see people making that are getting in the self-storage business, maybe things that, you know, from your experience of so many thousands of units, you know, that you just wouldn't know when you're first getting in. I think perhaps a product of the industry is the fact that most folks will call it a very simple, predictable business model. And, you know, it's just a bunch of metal boxes on concrete slabs. You know, there's, there's nothing, you know, rocket science to it. And it's very easy and very profitable and low loan default rate. You can't go wrong because you have the fact that it's self-storage, you know, working for you. And they treat it as a hobby rather than a business. And they don't really dig in and learn how to run it. They don't hire either a property management company if it's out of state or even if it's a large facility. You can't know the intricacies of a market that's one or two states away by trying to manage it yourself. Also, just the underwriting to begin with. You make money on a stock when you buy it, and it's the same with real estate. So getting really good at or hiring a consultant and somebody to assist in the due diligence just to make sure that you've crossed all your T's and dotted all your I's before you sign on the dotted line. So those are just a few. We hope that you have enjoyed the highlight show today. You can always listen to the full episodes that were featured today by clicking the links in the show notes page in the, in the description box. Let us know in the comments what you thought of this episode, or you can go to lifebridgecapital.com forward slash podcast and click the feedback button. Let us know how we can add more value to you. Thank you and talk to you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Syndication Show brought to you by LifeBridge Capital. LifeBridge Capital works with investors nationwide to invest in real estate, while also donating 50% of its profits to assist parents who are committing to adoption. 
LifeBridge Capital. Making a difference, one investor and one child at a time. Connect online at www.lifebridgecapital.com for free material and videos to further your success.